Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Out the Box Talks. I am your host, Krill. I am excited. I am back for another show. We are at episode 97. I got three. That You know what that means? That means I got three more episodes after this episode till I get to 100. I'm telling y'all, man, I'm going to get to that 100 before the year's up. It's coming. Listen. I have another guest on my show today that I'm excited to talk to. I've been learning about this this brother for a long time. Well, not a long time. Let me stop. It's been like last year I've heard about him. And uh, I've seen him like really make it happen this year, putting out a number of projects. So we're going to definitely talk today about his music, particularly his latest album, Trap Door which is produced by Messiah Music. So, yeah, man, it's going to be an interesting convo. Uh, But before I jump into my guest of the day, I do want to shout out some things out-the-box related. So, as you know, I got the website, outtheboxmedia.com, where you can get access to all of the previous interviews I've done all the way back to 2009 right so you if you're just finding out about me I'm definitely not new to this I have been definitely doing interviews since 2009 um in the last two years have been probably the most consistent I've been ever like taking on the role of producing a new episode and particularly an artist interview every week for the last two years so um I'm really excited about getting to the close of this year because when I look back at all I've done, it's been a lot, you know. So, um, but you get a chance to go check out some of the previous episodes on this website, outtheboxmedia.com. Just click the podcast tab or the TV shows tab at the top. Also, we have our merch page, outtheboxmedia.bigcartel.com, where you can get the snapback hat, the outtheboxmedia.com. Snapback hat, and I also have some out the box talks podcast hats up there, as well as hoodies, t shirts, even coffee mugs that you can, uh, you know, go ahead and cop to show your support for the platform if you like what it is I do and what we do on this out the box platform. Also, we have our Patreon page, which has exclusive interview clips that are only available to Patreon subscribers of Out The Box Media. So you have to be a Patreon subscriber to get these clips. But it's interviews with a number of artists that I've had on the platform. And it's interviews that I usually don't... Like, a lot of these questions I hold for, specifically for the bonus segment. So I think if you become a subscriber, you'll appreciate these interviews. And if you want to get an idea of the different artists that have these exclusive interview clips you could just go to this link patreon.com slash out the box media which will also be in the description of this video to get a list of the variety of artists i have over 30 and counting interviews up there also uh, i want to shout out our donation platform so if you would like to donate to the platform, you can send donations to paypal.me slash outtheboxmedia. You can also send it to Cash App at cash tag outtheboxrep, whichever one works better for you. Any donation is definitely accepted. Um, 
trust. I, I really appreciate any donation you can give. If the subscription model is not your flavor with the Patreon, then you could just do the one-time donation and show your support that way. All right? So I just wanted to shout that out. And also, if you are tuning in on YouTube right now on Octobox TV, you can also subscribe on the platform. Yay, I just made 3,000 subscribers, so I'm kind of excited about that. It took me a while to get there. I've been stalled for a bit, so I just got over the, got over that um, hump. And so, And then also, you can also catch the high-quality interviews on Out the Box Talks audio platform via, you know, apps like Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Overcast, Stitcher. So uh, for those that may not know, like I'm... Every interview that I do, I'm recording it on a separate board, which allows me to get a higher level of quality on the audio than it is on the streaming video. So just something for you guys to know if you prefer to listen to the interviews, you know, while you're out and about moving on the audio platforms. All right. So like I said, man, today I got a special guest on the show. He has been doing this thing for a little while now. This year has been a really productive year for him. I first got wind of him, I think, sometime in October last year when he put out the Throne of Loops mini EP. It's like a four-track EP with, like, two vocal records and, like, the instrumentals. Then this year he dropped the album with Nick Arcade, well, EP with Nick Arcade entitled Scenic on eight, in April uh, of this year, and he also dropped a project, another EP with producer August Fannin entitled We Dress the City with Our Names in July. And he, not too long ago, I like, I'm looking at his list and I'm like, man, I even realized he released so much projects this year. He also released a project uh, with uh, another artist, Cash Prez, and called, entitled Dev Prez in September. And most recently, the project that I will be mainly talking to him about today, he put out album this is a full-length album with producer messiah music entitled trap door on backwards studios just this november that just passed we just got out of november right so we're in december now so like i said man i'm excited to talk with him today so without further ado i want to welcome to our out the box talks viewing and listening audience the homie representing chicago Shot Town itself. Welcome to Out the Box Talks, Def C. Wow, yo, thank you for the uh, thank you for the very kind introduction. I appreciate that. Indeed, indeed, man. Like I said, man, it's a pleasure to have you here. I've been seeing your name circulating a lot throughout this year, and. I have to say, this Trapdoor album, you know, learning about it when it came out recently, because it came out like, what, about a week or two ago, right? Was yeah, it just like last yeah. week, I less think? Than a, less than a week, I Yeah, think. it's like no, fresh. No, no, it's, it's been over a week. I'm bugging. Yeah, uh, on the 23rd. Came out on the 23rd. Got it, got it. And it's fresh, uh, produced by uh, Messiah Music. And it's currently available on Bandcamp. I forgot to mention that. A lot of your releases are on Bandcamp. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, in listening to this album, I'll tell you this. I didn't really catch listening to the album, like, right away. But you had made a post. I don't know if it was, like, a Bandcamp message or a post. And you had talked about how well 
received it was, and it just intrigued me to be like, I I really got to sit down and listen to this, you know. So um, and then when I started listening to it, I was like, okay, I get it, I understand why, you know. And uh, so I definitely want to talk to you about this today. But before we jump into this album, and and the music related to it, I want you to share with the audience a little bit about um your journey as an MC, like what. Mm inspired you to take the path of taking music seriously as an MC? Mm. So uh, when I first got introduced to hip hop, I was two years old and my god sisters dragged my dad to a crisscross concert and uh, brought home a cassette single of Jump by Crisscross, And I heard it and I remember like running around the room just like going crazy for, I'd never heard anything like that before. I was like rubbing my fingertips against the armchair cause it sounded kind of like cutting on the turntable. And yeah, I mean, I thought I wanted to be a DJ at first. And then I just kind of, as I got older, um, you know, fell more and more in love with the craft of hip hop. And it went from listening to when I was a kid, smooth jazz on the radio in order to fall asleep to then it was Juvenile and Method Man and Red Man. And then it was Scarface and Jay-Z and AZ. And then it was Company Flow and Mad Villainy. And it was Vakil and The Moment and Typical Cats and a lot of underground legends from Chicago. So yeah, I released my first album well, I started writing raps when I was 11 years old on the way back from a White Sox game. Just there was a legal pad in the back of the front seat of the car. And rest in peace, Black Rob. It was, I think Bad Boys for Life was on mm. or something. And I just started writing. Um, wow. And I actually, I just told my students this week the embarrassing first two bars I wrote. <laughs> which was, uh, this is my mic, I'll steal your girl, like I'll steal your bike, which at two years old, or at 11 years old, I was doing neither of those things. I was not stealing anyone's bike, definitely not stealing anyone's girl. Um, so, and then from there, it just kind of evolved into an obsession with the craft and learning about poetry right alongside music was ill because I was listening to albums like it was written in Supreme Clientele while I was learning the intricacies of writing poetry. And I think those two albums in particular were really formative in terms of how I listen to hip hop production and also how I listen to lyrics and hip hop songs. And I had, there was a recording studio in the high school I attended and I had some older students who were putting me on to a whole lot of music and also were kind of coaching me in the studio and took me under their wing. And then it was pretty much from the time I recorded my first verse at 14, I knew that this was something that I wanted to keep doing for as long as I, as long as I could. So I dropped my first album when I was 17 and wow. I've been releasing music ever since then. Wow. Wow. 17. Yeah. Wow, that's that's a long time. And I, I imagine I'm not sure how old you are now, but I mean I'm, I'm 32. 
You see, so yeah, that's that's a little wild, man. So yeah, wow, it, it's interesting you said crisscross because the first ever cassette I ever bought, first ever album I ever bought was crisscross, totally crossed out. Wow, I, um, yo, I had that poster in my room. Yeah, it, that's it, crazy. You know, I, I remember um my pops. It, it was in Brownsville, uh, Pitkin Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a store. I think it was called a shack or something like that. And I remember going and getting it. Um, and that was the first time I ever bought a tape. And I just remember mm-hmm. that was the days of like in living color where they would perform and they would wear the, I was with the wearing the clothes backwards, the cross colors and all that, you know? <laughs> so it's interesting. You said crisscross, you know, but then, you know, as I got older, like similar to you, I started learning about other hip hop, but it's something about crisscross <laughs> that uh, connected with me as a youth, you know, something about seeing, and you spoke about like your first rhyme. I think most of us that start rhyming, it's always about something that we ain't living. You know what I mean? That's like yeah. the immaturity of it. You know, like you, it's all about the swag and stuff. And then as you get a little bit older, you learn. So um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. So I, I wanted to uh, also ask you about, um, like, obviously this new album, which features Messiah Music as the producer. Um, t- talk to me a little bit about how you and him came together to collaborate initially. Um, I mean, I was a fan of Messiah Music's work from being a fan of Armin Hammer and Billy Woods and Elucid. And so I remember hearing race music by Arm and Hammer mm. and hearing Shark Fin Soup and hearing Cloisters. And those are my two favorite songs off of that album. Mm. And it was, it just made total sense to me to then dig into his catalog. And I realized that he had produced other Arm and Hammer joints that I loved. And he produced a handful of Quelle Chris songs that I really liked too. And I just reached out to him via email. I'd been reaching out to a bunch of different producers just to work on music at the time. This is late 2013, I believe. And he sent me a pack. We initially had just discussed maybe it being one or two beats, but eventually what he was sending me was just so dope that I just kind (laughs) of kept asking him to set stuff to the side for me and the album kind of grew very organically out of that. And what was originally going to be an EP just kind of developed into an LP. And that's how it worked. I mean, he and I actually had never even had, it was via email. We never had a phone conversation until this year. Interesting. And we'd been working with each other for, for almost eight years. We, had never had a face-to-face interaction until we did our call out culture interview about the album mm-hmm. last week. So it's like, wow, it's great. But it, he's also just, you know, maybe one of the nicest people I've ever met through music. So the whole process has been very seamless and he's been very gracious and generous in addition to just being uber talented. So I think, the initial connection then leading to us continuing to work together was also just 
an outgrowth of there was something that clicked on the personality side of things that also came across in the music. Nice, nice. Wow, man. It's it's when you talk about how you and him came together and the fact that you guys <laughs> didn't like meet, you know, until this year and it took such a while before you guys could actually see each other. It it just it just amazes me of what technology is able to do. Like, I, I couldn't think of that happening back in the 90s or even yeah. in the early 2000s. Like, you know, Cass is in the studios together, you know, and, and, they, and they working out. But I love the, uh, the fact, as a fan, I feel like it's so dope that we get to hear such dope releases and, mm. and, and, and it doesn't have that thing that stops us from hearing it because, because these cats can't get together physically. You know what I mean? So I, I like that, you know, where a lot of us are using the technology to, to create and put stuff out there in the atmosphere for people to absorb and, and, and be inspired by and, and just enjoy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So actually, I wanted to just rewind back just a little bit because you did put out the album the ep with august fan in this year entitled we dress the city with our names in july and i thought i felt like that was one of another one of your standout projects this year so i didn't want to like completely ignore it um can you for those that may not know can you walk us through how you and august came to collaborate and what the message of that ep is actually about word we connected through iceberg theory who's a very talented underground rapper who has done a lot of work with Fanon. I think they've made three or four projects together. And one of the projects that they dropped this year is called Horn Monk. And it's, it's super crazy. And I'm sure Iceberg would have done a whole run of interviews had he not just totally gone off the grid but yeah, he's he's very talented and also has served as a dot connector, I think, in the underground. And I'd reached out to him because he had me rhyme on a Fanon beat on his album, Dispatches from the Kali Yuga. And earlier in 2020, I'd asked if he thought Fanon would be interested in working with me on some music. And he said, absolutely. And passed along the contact info and Fanon sent his typical pack of 40 amazing beats Mm. that I then had to choose (laughs) five joints from. And uh, which is, while it's an amazing problem to have, is also something that could potentially, like you just don't want to screw that up. Right, right. Like, Like I know this man, I'm also just somebody who tries to be very familiar with the catalogs of the people whose music I listen to and music I who, who I work on music with. So Fanon, I know that like, if I'm making an album or an EP, even an EP with Fanon, that's gonna go right next to the work he's done with Makami and the work he's done with West Side Gun and the uh, work he's done with Iceberg. Yeah. So I gotta make sure that what I do is able to stand out amongst that discography. So, 
picked those beats from that pack. And when I had them and was listening to them over and over again, it was a little intimidating because they were so dope that I felt like I was going to mess it up. I was uh. just like, you know, I'm going to get to the 90, I'm going to get to the one yard line and I'm going to fumble this like Leon let, like, it's just gonna, it's not, it's not gonna live up to what these beats sound like. So what I do when I'm stuck like that is I try to watch movies to kind of get the gears turning in my brain and with Fanon, who I know is a visual artist, his music kind of reminded me of collage work and like Romare Bearden and a lot of old school graffiti as well. Mm. 70s, 80s, early kind of, you know, beautiful on the, on the bricks and also clearly still in its developmental stage. And I had never seen Star Wars before. So I decided to sit down and watch Star Wars. And as I was watching it, for, the first thing that struck me is it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Any yeah. genre, any medium, documentary or feature. And as I was watching it and I was hearing the writers in the movie talk about writing and I'm watching this informal mentorship that's happening between writers and some of the younger kids I started to notice parallels to what it was like to be in the youth spoken word scene growing up or to be a young kid in Chicago's hip hop scene at the open mics and how that sort of informal mentorship was happening all the time and how it really felt like we were part of something special that was bigger than ourselves that was something that only we really understood and so I just decided to make the EP as a chronicle of those experiences and then connect it kind of to what life is like right now. So it's, I mean, the title came from a quote one of the writers gave in an interview in Style Wars. All of the titles are titles that were pulled from words that were drawn on the side of trains in the film. Nice. So it's basically not only an homage to that film, because I, I've never written graffiti in my life. I have my little BS tag that I used to write on my notebooks and stuff, but it wasn't anything I ever wrote on anything else. Yeah. So it was just an homage to that. It was an homage to that period in time when hip hop really felt golden and pure and new to me as I was discovering it. And it was an homage to my homies who were graffiti writers and rappers. And I was just trying to do what they did with graffiti with what I did in the pockets I picked and the writing on the, on the EP as well. Nice. Nice. I, I, I didn't, I didn't make the connection to style wars, but that was a, a project that I didn't really get a chance to like fully listen to, but I just felt like I wanted to highlight it in this interview. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so let's jump back to this album, Trap Door. Um, tell me about the significance of the title. Mm. What made you decide to go with this wording, The Trap Door? So initially, the title was 
the Institute of Living, which is the name of one of the songs on there. Yes. And I was going to call it that because my dad, who's a former journalist, who's from West Hartford, Connecticut, was telling me a story one day because he is just kind of full of information. So you sit down and have dinner with him. You learn a million different things in 30 to 45 minutes of conversation. And he was talking to me about this place in Connecticut where he grew up called the Institute of Living. That was a mental health facility. And I was sitting there like, that would be an amazing album title. So I kind of filed it away for later. And the music I was making with Messiah started to fit that title. Initially, it was going to be a concept album where it was going to be like from the perspective of somebody who was put in a mental health facility against their will and then they get treated and then they get out. And the issue was that I wasn't able to write anything that felt like it would have stood out apart from that concept, which is, I, I would argue, probably the biggest hurdle that anyone making a concept album has to get over, which is if the music can't stand out outside of the project, then the challenge really isn't, it doesn't really feel like you've done anything that people are going to be able to return to. So, you know, a concept album like Only Built for Cuban Links, for example, that's something that has individual songs that stand out and then they also work in the narrative of the album when you go back and listen to it. And eventually I kind of dropped the concept and just started writing to those beats. And when the album really started to pick up steam, I researched the Institute of Living and I found out some stuff about it I didn't like where it, it might have worked as a title for that specific song, but for an entire project, it just didn't make sense like mm. this. And it's a it's a much different place from what I understand now, like it's much more professional and well run. But I read about what they were doing with electroshock therapy back in the day. And I also read that like they were one of the places where Catholic Church was sending clergy who are sexually abusing children mm. under the pretense of mental health issues in order to kind of prevent the scandal that wound up coming out. So it, it just didn't feel right to give the entire project that title. So as I was kind of going through the music and thinking of a different title, that word trapdoor just kind of came in my mind. And the contradictory elements of that word trap door, trap being the idea of being confined to a space and a door being something that allows movement between spaces was something that was coming across in the music as, mm. as a common thread throughout. So for example, a song like Muscle, it might seem like repressing pain is something that you just have to do in order to build resilience and strength. So that would be the door part of it, right? Mm -hmm. But really, if you're not finding healthy ways to kind of vent and express that pain, and if you're just keeping it all to yourself and walking around with it, you're stuck with it. So that would be the trap side of the, of the phrase. 
And that's kind of what I realized about, not kind of, but that's what I realized about every song on the album is that I could say that concept applied to each of them. And that's where the title really gained a lot of resonance mm. later on. Mm. Wow, you said a mouthful. And I, I was actually going to ask you about that, the title Institute of Living a little later on in the interview. But being that you brought it up, I did notice that I was as I was listening to the song and really just trying to get an idea of what you were speaking to, it was a little difficult for me to understand you know, what you were referring to in regards to Institute of Living. Uh, it's starting to make a little bit more sense now as you, in, in what you just said, but can you talk specifically to what that song is actually talking about? So that's the only song on the album that retained the original concept that I was talking right, about, right. where it was inspired by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nests with Jack Nicholson being in the being in the insane asylum and looking around at everybody trying to medicate themselves out of what made them special. And I thought about writing a rap from the perspective of somebody who's in a facility like that, who's embraced the fact that they're out of their mind while also still trying to express the sadness of that fact. So that was where I was coming from with it. And I kind of just kept it because I love the hook. I love the lyrics of the song. I thought of all of the songs on the album, it was probably the most abstract. Mm -hmm. And it was, I got to be honest here, a song I kept for me. You know, I love that beat. I love that concept. I loved what I wrote to it. And it was also the first song that Billy Woods heard that made him want to put the joint out on backwards. So I'm, I'm glad you, you brought Billy Woods up because I, I wanted to talk about how I mean, to my knowledge, I know Messiah Music has done work, you know, a lot of work with backwards. But like, talk to me about how this even manifested into a project on Backwood Studios. Um, I Woods, I had met him in person for the first time when he came to town like seven years ago in an informal capacity. And then he came back through on tour with Prem Rock and DJ Mo Nichols. And my first headlining show in Chicago, which was my first headlining show ever, he was on wow. the bill. That's dope. And yeah, which was Ill. Him and Prem Rock and Mo Nichols and Tomorrow Kings. Shouts out to all of them. And Woods, when I played him the first few scratch demos from it, which included a, the definition of insanity with Curly Castro, he was digging it. And I just said, is this something that you guys would be interested in putting out? And again, this is back in 2015. And he was and he was with it. And he would check in periodically, but, and you know, the album would kind of be in a variety of stages of completion. It would be 40 to 60% written one year. And then <laughs> I would scrap a whole bunch of stuff and then it's back to the drawing board or I was swapping beats out. And 
So Woods remained committed to putting it out. And I would just kind of update him every now and then about it. And I really appreciate that he was willing to honor that commitment because it, it took so long to make it. And he could have, especially with everything that he and Elucid and the label in general had going on, could have moved on to other projects and I wouldn't have been mad at him for it. But he really stuck to it. And I'm very grateful that he did because it feels like the album came out when and how it should have through the label that it should have been released on. And yeah, that's how that relationship manifested. And it, it's been incredibly healthy and very easy and really helpful to do business with backwoods in terms of woods and Anton and what they bring to the table as far as their ideas, even something like putting Trap Door out on a Tuesday. I'd intended to put it out on Black Friday, and I'm glad I didn't because it would have gotten lost in the shuffle. But putting it out on Tuesday, excuse me, there really wasn't a lot of competition and, and a lot of people talked about it, which was dope. So, yeah, shout out to Backwoods, shout out to Billy Woods and Anton and yeah, shout out to everybody over there, all of the artists over there who are making really, really good music. It's dope to be a part of a legacy like that. That's what's up, man. Wow, man. 2015. I didn't realize it was so long that you yeah. were working on this, man. This is yeah. like your, in a way, it's like your baby, like, you know, <laughs> you, you've you been putting in the work. You talking about scrapping it and coming back and that's yeah. a labor of love, you know? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And and I'm somebody who always kind of had from the time I was young, I always had ideas for a million different projects. But the mistake I would make is I would announce them without ever having recorded them and some of them without ever having <laughs> written a word. So that's a lot of motivation for you. <laughs> yeah. You live I mean, up it's to also it. a lot of like that teenage ambition like teenage early 20 something and then especially with the advent of social media is like oh i can tell everybody everything i'm thinking which so stupid so what i was able to do is just kind of sit down and plan things out and come up with timetables and write down the the names of certain projects i wanted to come out certain years and i just as somebody who always is kind of creating and chipping away at a bunch of different pieces, I always knew I eventually came around to the idea that it was just going to be ready when it was ready mm. and that it was going to come out. I wasn't going to just abandon it on some detox shit. I was going to really take the time to see this through to its completion because the material that I had that I knew I wanted to put out was excellent. The production was great. So I knew it had to happen. So I just kind of kept working at it. And then I wrote for other things in the meantime that I could drop that people would appreciate that I really believed in as well. So a mixtape is God Intended, Lacuna, Summer Courses, Thrown for Loops, so Scenic, the, yeah. the album, uh, the deluxe edition of that. We dress the city with our names. You know, those are all things that I'm working on and releasing. Even the album I put out, 
damn near grown in 2015. I put that out after I'd started writing for the Messiah music album. So oh, yeah, yes. I mean, just really trying to be patient, not only with myself, but with the work and to just learn the difference between being such a perfectionist that I never release anything and being right. enough of a craftsman to know when something was ready for people to listen to it. Yeah, that that's a that is a often challenging balance to have. So when you're able to figure that out, um, I think it's a great thing. All right. So the other thing that uh, stands out about the album before we even get to the music is the album cover. Mm. Can you talk about what the art is actually depicting? Like, what is the message in the image? So working with Backwoods, I wanted to work with Alex Richter, who's an incredible photographer from New York, who's photographed hip hop legends, um, Freddie Gibbs, Action Bronson, 50 Cent, Prodigy from Mob Deep. He's done so much incredible work over the years. And if you go to his website and you look at the gallery, you're going to recognize so many of those photos. One of my favorite hip hop photos of all time is of Max B just standing in front of a door with money in front of his face. And Richter took that picture. So I knew that he had a close relationship with Woods. I knew that he did a lot of work with their artists over at Backwoods. So I reached out and that was something that I knew I wanted. I knew I wanted a, a Richter photo for an album cover. But the turnaround time was a little bit brief. And when I had spoken to him about it, he'd mentioned that he probably would have preferred coming to the city and shooting something here with me. But he had a bunch of photos and, and Polaroids that he'd taken and he just sent me a bunch to choose from. And that image and the image of the back cover, because we're going to have to put out product at this point based on the demand for it. But both of those images stood out in terms of that particular cover sounded like one of the bars on it, which is the uh, one way toward the exit blocked by what you you won't confront. So like there's this huge mass just obstructing the pathway of, of a hallway. And that kind of was what it felt like the album was addressing in a lot of ways. So, and the art in and of itself, it's a sculpture. It's a steel sculpture by an artist named Richard Serra that Richter just took a picture of. And so that's what it's depicting. And I think one of the reasons I liked it was because it's open to interpretation. Mm. And that's one of the things I love about art in general. And something I love about hip hop is when you're able to kind of leave it up to interpretation. And also when sometimes you don't have to interpret anything, it's just that that image felt like the perfect image to reflect the music that is on the album. Mm. So mm. interesting, interesting. I, I didn't, you know, a lot of times you'll see an album cover and you don't really know the backstory behind, 
you know, how it came to be. I would have never thought that you, um, you know, you actually worked with him to be able to get this. And, and the way that you told the story was like, you had to go through a series of images that he kind of like, so what it is that you just told him the title and he had pictures that were already, uh, available for the title that, that made sense for the title that he shared with you. That you had to yeah, from? pretty much. Wow. He just he just had a, a bunch of Polaroids that he shared with me and I took a look at them and I picked the two that just looked like the sound of the album or had some sort of resonance when I thought about the lyrics on the right. album as well. So, yeah, yeah I, th I, I think it was those. dope, dope. I think it was good that you you know, you thought about the lyrics, right, on the album, and it just wasn't just something so abstract that you're just like, I'm just going to throw an image. Like, you, like for one, it, you thought about the title, but you went even further and thought about the lyrics, too. So mm -hmm. it really mirrors the full body of work when you think about the depiction of the art to the, to the music, you know. So I want to talk about... I want to actually go through some of the songs on the album and... and, and pinpoint some of the lyrics the first track entitled rabbi and the golem mm -hmm. you say on the hook molded something magic out of clay hit ten thousand hours not a rapper of the day can you expound on what the magic is that you're referring to in the song and also why hitting ten thousand hours separates you from a rapper of the day that's like mm. a two-part question, if you could. Word. I like this. I like that question. That's a good question. So I think, first of all, the title I borrowed from a phrase Wood said on the Arm & Hammer song, Shark I remember Fin that Soup. phrase, yeah. Yeah, Rabbi and the Golem, Base Clay Left the Harden in the Sun. And a Golem, for those people who might not be familiar with it, is an old Jewish myth where when you had certain, say in Russia, bands of people who were trying to destroy the Jewish communities in their midst. So, you know, in pogroms or whatever, rabbis would create a protector out of clay inscribe something on its forehead and then the golem would come to life and protect the village and then the rabbi would eventually have to find a way to at a certain point kill the golem because the golem is you know after it's done with fulfilling its obligations is eventually going to turn so stories like frankenstein for example go back to that idea Superman was created by two Jewish authors in the midst of the Holocaust um, as a golem of sorts because there weren't any protectors in Europe at that time. So I thought about that in terms of what I was making as an artist and how creation a lot of times, and this also goes back to something Woods has said in songs and in interviews, a lot of times creation is about magic. 
you'll be able to put a thought down or find a pocket or something and it and it just hits you out of nowhere so that's where that came from in terms of that specific bar and then in terms of hit 10,000 hours not a rapper of the day there's that principle that if you spend 10,000 hours working on something you've mastered it and if I'm mastering something I'm not mastering it for people to just be aware of it for a brief moment of time and then move on to something else so that's basically what I was trying to say with those two bars on that hook mm-hmm. yeah it's a interesting song that you kind of start the project with and i i haven't done a review for this album yet i just started doing like you know regular like consistent music reviews i took a little break but usually my goal was to do it every day on my other youtube channel and after really like thoroughly listening to this album i'm i'm more than likely gonna do a review for this uh so also with that song you you have a line, a lyric on there where you say, earn affirmation rather than expecting it. Rappers crying for mentions like with the parents who neglected them. Now the hook, then you say now, now the look, now look, the latter is a legitimate issue to address and the former is a matter of being insignificant and depressed. When you say the latter and the former, can mm-hmm. you, for clarity, express the exact lines you're referring to for each? So the latter being, if you're being neglected by your parents, that's something legitimate to cry about. Mm-hmm. If you're upset that people are not mentioning your name enough on Twitter and talking about rap conversations, that's not a legitimate thing. Especially if you're somebody who's able to make money off of music because there are not a lot of people who are able to do that mm-hmm. so it was just for me and i'm somebody who did that just for the sake of disclosure i did that i was somebody who was making not like a lot of money but a little bit of money off of music and then was looking to give horse in the mouth and just complaining about everybody who wasn't listening to me at the expense of everybody who was. Mm. And I think that that's something that a lot of us, especially in the underground, really have a tough time wrestling with is like, we get so focused on the people who are not paying attention to what it is we're doing that we don't take time to really show gratitude to those people who are rocking with what it is we're doing in the first place. So that's what that bar was about. And I think it's just silly to give so much weight to negative criticism as if it was something that was on par with childhood trauma. And obviously there's certain negative criticism that goes over the line and, and is kind of traumatizing to have to experience. I'm looking at what Rico Nasty is dealing with on tour, opening for Playboy Cardi. It's ridiculous. I'm thinking of particularly black women in music and in hip hop have to endure so much bullshit 
and so much shit talking that I can't ever fault anybody for feeling some type of way about negative criticism like that. But when I'm thinking about people who are just shitting on your raps or who just don't rock with your style, like it's not that serious. Just, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's going to be somebody who appreciates it. It's just not going to be that person. I figured that that's what you were talking about, but just for clarity, I wanted you to kind of, you know, make sure I had the lines correct in no terms doubt. of what you were equating it to. So I'm going to still stay on that track because you also have, you have a few lines on that track that definitely, you know, intrigues me to find out the deeper meaning. You also mentioned uh, that you got rid of your self-saboteur Mm. And the rest of you came alive. It's pride or integrity. You better pick one and stick with it. You say that. What exactly is the self-saboteur that you speak about in the song? And how did destroying it enable you to come alive? Uh, I think the self-saboteur kind of reflects back on the bars that you just mentioned. Mm. So the follow-up is... The former as a matter of being insignificant in the press was depressed for the same reasons. Then I made 25, killed myself, saboteur, and the rest of me came alive. So it was like this idea of basically getting in my own way as an artist and not really taking the time to put everything in perspective and try to lower well not lower but just reshape my expectations so that music could be more fulfilling for me okay definitely thanks for for sharing that mm -hmm. so let's jump into some other music and i'm gonna be doing this you know like really just trying to go through some of your lyrics for most of the rest of the interview so the next song compassion you have mm. a, a lyric where you say it's nothing new to me just look at kindness and cruelty. Those who deserve him the most receive him the least. And I had to stop at that because I was like, wow, like that's some profound writing right there, you know. Um, and, you know, you think about society and you think about humans and human nature. Like, why do you think this outcome is the case? What is it about the human behavior that creates this result? Mm. I think the it's it's a matter of powerful people at a certain point just stopped caring about the niceties of power and financial gain. I think both of those things are at the core of what ultimately has destabilized this country so much. And I look at I look at people like, for example, the architects of the housing crisis in 2008, they all got a slap on the wrist for all of the people whose lives they ruined because they sold them mortgages that they knew were faulty or they sold mortgages to the people who rented the houses out that they knew were faulty and actually didn't exist. And people still spent their life savings on them. I think about 
people like the Koch brothers and how they lifted the cap on campaign spending so that they were able to push legislation through Congress that was able to represent their business interests. And then you look at somebody getting 10 to 15 years in prison behind like a brick of dope. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me because the, the scale of it, no pun intended, it, it just doesn't justify it for me. So it's, it's just looking at the way this country operates, how it feels like money only really serves money and power only really serves power. Mm. And people use both of those things or not use both of those things, but both of those things are the real motivators behind people who say that their motivations are something entirely different in order to then treat those people who probably deserve, or not probably, who definitely deserve the most compassion with the most cruelty instead. So I think that that's where that came from. Just a, a lot of the album too was made, a good chunk of it in the midst of the pandemic. And I think during the pandemic, in addition to having just more time to sit down and think, I think a lot of the institutional failings of this country were laid bare and a lot of things sharpened into focus for me. And that was a thought that I kept coming back to. Mm. Like, you know, why is somebody like Donald Trump? I mean, I know why, but he's been treated with so much compassion by people, mm. you know, not necessarily the people who want to lock him up or the people who didn't vote for him, but the people who supported him. And those people are like, he's insulated himself within those people so that he never has to hear a cross word about himself. And he's not the only person who's ultra wealthy or ultra powerful who does that. Mm. And it really does kind of feel like, um, in this country in particular, we've kind of thrown a lot of what good government should look like out the window for the sake of corporate interest and white supremacy in a lot of cases and um, at the expense of people who desperately, desperately, desperately need institutional assistance. Mm. So. You know, when you when when I when I heard that line, it also made me think about this word kindness and how it's sometimes connected to the word weakness, right? Like you'll hear someone mm. say, Don't take my kindness for weakness. And I felt like that's almost like an oxymoron for someone to say. Like, why does some, someone even have to say that, right? Like kindness should be always looked at as a strength. So it just made me think about, you know, like when you said, when you reference kindness, um, it just, it just made me think about like how backwards, you know, we could be at times, you know, um, in society. Can you, can you tell me like what your, 
overall message you wanted to convey with the song compassion like what was the overall message so the hook the i mean the hook is the message like if they gave a fuck they would act like it meaning specifically powerful people and especially in the midst of the pandemic i'm as a teacher hearing from students that people around them are dying because the community where i was teaching at the time had a really high covid rate and we still had a state board of education who was pushing for us to go back to school and was pressuring schools to reopen. Not everybody is vaccinated. Not everybody is healthy or not everybody has a strong enough immune system. I know that the ventilation systems in the schools definitely don't work. So the air is not clean and you're gonna be recirculating a lot of air that people are not going to be able to breathe. You're not going to be able to convince 14 and 15 year olds to wear masks for an entire day of school. It's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So the kind, compassionate thing to do would have been to just keep everybody home until we had gotten to a point where the vaccination rate had been high enough for it to be from a logical standpoint. Mm -hmm safe enough to put everybody back in the schools but that didn't happen and the reason why it didn't happen was because businesses needed those parents to go back to work so in order for the parents to go back to work it's time to send their kids back to that state-sponsored daycare so it, it was just like looking at all of that and also just looking at all of the backwards decisions that a lot of the United States government was making in terms of financially like $2,000 in stimulus money for a year and a half, two years. It's just like looking at stuff like that and just being not necessarily disappointed because I think a lot of us know that ultimately the government at this point in history and potentially at every point in history, but I can only really speak for the history I've been alive for has really kowtowed to a lot of self-interest, but more so at a time when we should have seen the best of everybody, we just had our worst fears confirmed as far as the intentions of people in power and where their priorities really were. Mm. So I think that was the message of the song and uh, was kind of the connective tissue between a lot of the different things I was addressing in those verses. Mm -hmm. Wow. They say the definition of insanity is doing yeah. the same thing and expecting a different result to happen. You have a song featuring Curly Castro mm -hmm. that is titled The Definition of Insanity. What would you say creates that realization or that aha moment that tells someone they have to change their course of action? Mm. First of all, these questions are amazing, Krill. Thank you very much. You really are a, a masterful hip hop interviewer, as it says in your Twitter bio. So that, that you, was well-earned, well-earned. Uh, I would say there are some people who never learn that. There are some people who continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. In the song, the story I'm telling, and which is made up of whole cloth, is just about 
somebody who kind of keeps repeating the same mistakes, suffering consequences for them. And then ultimately the one thing that that person is worried about at the end of the verse isn't the consequence of their actions, but it's something entirely too trivial. And I think that that's something that a lot of people, especially now experience is just a lack and something I, I also, again, full disclosure, am still learning is that there are consequences for your actions. And if you're worried about the wrong shit at a certain point, you're not gonna learn from your mistakes and it is gonna stunt your growth and you're not gonna be able to become an entirely different person. So there are some people who are never able to do that. I think there are also people who make certain mistakes over and over and over again, and it starts to impact people they love and they realize that they have to change and are seeing the people around them start to move away from them or um, you know, starting to change in terms of how they interact with, with you and you gotta change at that point. But there are some people who just never have that realization and it, it, it is a kind of insanity. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I asked the question is because it's a common thing, right? Like I've heard this saying so much and it's, it's, it's even cooler that you chose to like, you know, title a song and deal with this on the song. But, you know, I'm always curious of solutions and like what, um, what causes someone to like realize, okay, enough is enough. I need to make change, you know? Mm -hmm. So moving on, um, I want to talk a little bit about the process of the production selection on this album. Like how mm -hmm. did you and Messiah music work together to decide on which beats would be used? Cause I have to say this and I didn't say it earlier. When I listen to the album, I get sort of a, a lo-fi jazz sound and mm. there's like a cinematic soul element there. But for the most part, it just feels like lo-fi hip hop jazz and, and, and laid back. But yeah, you, uh, you, can you talk a little bit about how y'all went through selecting what tracks, I mean, what beats would be right. Cause it is, it sounds cohesive. The, the production sounds, it doesn't, nothing sounds off, mm -hmm. but yeah, uh, I mean, the thing I've, I've been saying in all of these interviews and saying to people in private, and I'm going to keep saying it, is Messiah makes the beats that RZA lost in the flood. Mm, like, yeah, I did those see you are, say it. You know, like the, the loops and the drums and all of that. And so, and he just, I don't know how he finds the time, but he just churns out so much good material. And so he would just send me packs and packs and packs and packs and beat, of beats. And I would just pick the ones I liked the most. And then I would just kind of put them together in an Apple Music playlist in order to make sure that they were cohesive. But yeah, the process was very simple. Messiah would send me beats. I would pick the ones I liked the most. I would write to them and it was there was more of an editorial process in terms of the songs as in which songs were going to make the album than there was in terms of which beats were going to make the album. Nice. Nice. So I mentioned this earlier, but I want to come back to it. 
uh, I said, uh, I think it was a post or maybe it was a Bandcamp message you sent uh, where you said, uh, this album, this Trapdoor album has been your most well-received project thus far. What do you think has caused that? Inertia, on the one hand, I think part of it is, as I was saying a little bit earlier, just all of the right elements falling into place at the right time. So they say that luck is when talent meets opportunity. And I think everybody involved in this has been talented at what they do for quite some time. And I also think that we're at a very interesting point in hip hop where people are starting to gravitate toward music that they may not have wanted to admit that they enjoyed in the past. I think we all have been there where we didn't want to admit that we were listening to certain underground stuff because we didn't want to be that one weirdo talking about doom at the lunch table. Everybody's talking about Dipset and Jeezy. Why are you bringing this guy up? Right. <laughs> and it wasn't until years later when no stigma went away that we really started to acknowledge people like doom for being the geniuses that they are and for making the music that and making music that is not only timeless, but is also just, remarkable in terms of how you can study it and learn something new from it every time you come back to it. And I think that this album is also from a writing standpoint, a product of me studying a lot of rap music that I love and trying to approach the subject matter using those techniques. So for example, somebody like Freddie Gibbs or somebody like Benny the Butcher, you know, they their lived experiences are totally different from mine. But the things that they do as MCs, I've learned from them. I've learned from Pusha, I've learned from Future. I've learned from, from listening to so many MCs. And then I think the thing that a lot of rappers, especially white rappers, get confused is that we can study what it is they do and then filter them through the prison of prism prism of our own kind of unique individual styles without then having to co-opt the narratives from that music. Mm -hmm. And so I was just, you know, I knew I had stories to tell. I knew I had things that I wanted to say in the music. And so I decided to study people who are experts of their craft, regardless of, what they were talking about in the music and i just absorbed and learned so much and i brought that into what it is that i do so i think it it can resonate with people who are really into complex rhyme schemes or people who are in the punchlines and it can also appeal to people who are and always have been really into underground indie hip-hop mm -hmm. so I was basically trying to do what I admire Andre 3000 for, which is to check off all of the boxes that somebody listening to a rap album for the raps and the hooks would want to get from it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why, and just, come on now, Backwood's first release this year was an album fully produced by Alchemist. Right. So, you know, it, it there was already going to be a raised profile and, having a an arm and hammer feature i was really grateful for that 
having Castro and Premrock on there and Henry Canyons, who are people who have put out music through Backwoods in Alaska, who's mm -hmm. an underground legend from New York and, you know, the homies from Chicago who are on there too. I think it, it just was a natural convergence of events that, you know, people were tapped in. And it also was just so that I'm not denying myself credit here, a product of a plan that I've been putting together for a long time. Right. That, I knew that I wanted this to be the capper of that plan. Yeah. And it was going to be, I knew I wanted this to come out on Backwoods. I knew that Armin Hammer was picking up steam. I knew that the other artists that they were affiliated with were, had names that were starting to ring out. So I just kind of trusted the plan that I'd created and executed it. Nice. Makes a lot of sense, especially when you take into account like you said, or like I said earlier, like it's like a labor of love. You've been working on it for a long time and also it being on backwards and the features, as you say. So getting back to the music, the song Snares. You say the difference between wisdom and fear is a tucked chain. Explain the significance of the tucked chain to mm -hmm. wisdom and fear. Uh, I mean, I came up with that bar and I was like, oh, that's tight. I got to say that in a song. So that was just the surface level of it. And then I had to go back and think about it, too. Just the, the idea that if you're going somewhere where you know that you have something that somebody else might want from you and you don't want that to be taken from you, of course, you're going to hide it. You're going to conceal it. And on the other hand, you're gonna also have to acknowledge that you're scared and that's why you did it in that situation. So I think that to me was just something that I've always been obsessed with is the idea of nuance and the gray areas between certain things. And I think with social media, we've stratified opinions on the most trivial things possible. You know, so something like somebody tucking in their chain when they're going somewhere where they're not a known entity is something that's looked at by people who have never had to have that problem as if it's something that's worth their commentary when mm. it's not. So I think that was something that it was just a line that I thought of that I thought was really cool. And then when I went back and thought about it, I was like, okay, cool. I can also, these are also some thoughts that are springing from this bar as well. So, yeah, I thought it was an interesting line because, um, you know, a lot of times in hip hop, I'll hear a line that on the surface, I think I know what it means. But then when I sit and I listen, you know, I observe it again. I'm like, hold on, there's something more here. Like, so that's why I like doing these interviews, because I get to ask um, the artist to kind of reveal what it what exactly they meant or they intended by the line, you know. So, yeah, thanks for um, explaining that. So. Also on that song, Snares, you say white supremacies and illness we've passed on to children and still refuse to shield them with masks. Can you explain what you mean by the latter part, still refusing to shield them with masks? Uh, I, I don't think that we, especially, and, and this is coming from the perspective of a white dude who's a teacher, we don't do a, we don't do a good enough job being honest about the roots that this country has in white supremacy 
and how basically all of our institutions were built on the idea that white people deserve comfort and power at the expense of black and brown people. Mm. That's everything comes from that, like slavery and menial labor from immigrant communities that then eventually joined in the system of white supremacy again at the expense of black and brown people mm. so i we, and, and we're just not honest with kids about that so the only way i would argue to keep a white kid from eventually becoming a white supremacist is to be honest with that kid about the roots of this country and the roots of the history of this country and we're not honest with white kids about that at all mm. so that's where it came from for me and i've worked in i worked at my old high school for quite some time and i hope to work there again so hopefully this doesn't disqualify me from that position when i apply but i think in when you work in certain communities there's a lot of talk that borrows language from progressive politics but when it comes time to really sit down and have the heart to heart and lay all the cards on the table mm -hmm. people don't want to do that mm. and people don't want to people don't want to acknowledge the role that white supremacy has played in their own success and i'm certainly somebody who is a white rapper i've benefited from that mm -hmm. and to be honest there are white people who listen to my music and whether it's a conscious or subconscious decision, they're into it because I'm a white rapper. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where it comes from is we just have to be a lot more honest with kids, especially about the racist roots of this country, as well as how white supremacy plays a role in the day to day lives that we lead. Yeah, man, deep, definitely. So moving along, the, the songs Scape Grace 2013, you say on that song, as I think it's in the hook, actually, you say, as each day run into the next, you were struggling for more and hustling for less. Can you talk about the challenge that you were trying to overcome related to the subject in that song? Like what was happening? Because I see that it's, title it has the 2013 title so it sounds like you're talking about something that happened during that time like so can you talk about the challenge that you're referring to in that song and how you were able to overcome it um i mean a lot of that there's a there's a significant chunk of that song that's basically about surviving things like working a, a full-time job for part-time pay mm, okay working working um and that part-time pay meaning i don't have health insurance so i can't get therapy even though i'm working in a prison one day a week mm. uh the idea that i was not working as hard as people who are more successful than me in music even though i felt entitled to that success mm. and was then resentful of them for their success. And that kept me from celebrating it. 
So I think there were a bunch of things in addition to just experiencing for the first time young people in my in my life who are dying. I'd never really experienced that before. And that was the beginning of really a series of years that continues to this day where I've lost at least one person I've cared about each year. And there have been some years where it's been two or three. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of everything that I was dealing with in that song. And there's a suite of songs in the middle of that album that I think are about that particular experience in my life, which is around the time when I started writing for this album mm -hmm. that kind of get more in depth into the specifics of that of that time in my life. Sure. Why'd you choose to go with the the title Scapegoats? The idea, I mean it was kind of I think sarcastic. The idea that you've escaped God's grace, which I think mm. that's where that I think that's where that word comes from. I read it. I'm somebody who I try to read a lot as as often as I can and I'll come across a word and I'll look it up and think to myself, maybe this will work as a title and a group name. And nine times out of 10, it's just corny as all hell. But every now, but then you get to the 10th time and a title like Scapegrace just kind of made sense for that song. As far as having that feeling throughout that time in my life of feeling like, damn, I'm just, I can't catch a break. So. Makes sense, makes sense. So, you speak about your experience as a teacher in the song Time Off, and you also do it a number of times on this album, and I imagine you probably addressed it on some of your previous albums too. But um, how would you say your experience as an educator has helped to develop your outlook on community and inspired your conscious subject matter as an MC. So I think it's interesting. I for a long time I've kind of struggled with words like conscious as a label for the music because I don't want people to take a look at that and then think to themselves, you know, then it, it becomes rap word association right, so right. then you're, you're coming up with different names and songs that don't really sound like what i'm doing so for me as an educator i've just learned that a lot of the preconceived notions that i've held about human beings and especially kids are just not true mm. like you don't learn about how easy it is to write a kid off at 14 years old until you become an educator. And then after that, you don't learn how harmful that is mm. because you haven't then put yourself in that kid's shoes. Right. So if I was 14 years old and somebody, you know, everybody had given up on me, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. There wouldn't be anything to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we as educators, especially those of us who are educators in, you know, prisons and detention centers, 
that's something that we have to confront. You have to confront the idea that people have the ability to change because especially what I was seeing when I was teaching in the juvenile detention center, which is what kind of the crux of that song is about. There were kids who were in there 16, 17 years old. They already had been there before. They had a few of, they had a, an entire unit of kids that were tried as adults and were in the detention center until their 17th birthdays. And then on that day, they got transferred to the county. And I think I just learned that, that this, there are certain complexities that human beings have that we don't acknowledge when we penalize them for something or when we write them off. And one of the lessons, just so that I'm not being too long-winded here, that I learned uh, from my time there is that you you can't give up on kids. Mm. If you're a teacher, you can't give, even when a kid is given up on themselves, you can't give up on them. And even if you have, you can't ever treat them like you've given up on them. Because mm. at that point, they'll give up all the way. Wow. So. That's deep. Yeah. So I, I think a song like that and, and working in that detention center, I mean, the worst day of my life was in that detention center. Mm. And we, we walked into work and it was... Uh, class of kids that we'd worked with the week before and the class had gone really well. And then we went into that class and there was like one kid there and we found out that six of our students had attempted suicide together on the tier. And it didn't hit us until we left work. But that's the reality of the situation that a lot of those kids are in. And they're 14, 15 years old. That's heavy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we don't, and we don't think about that. We we've kind of lied to ourselves in a lot of ways about a juvenile detention center being like a nicer version of nah, it's jail. The shit is jail. And we don't acknowledge that. So we then institutionalize kids, oftentimes for very trivial shit that they don't deserve to be going to jail for. Um we institutionalized them at a young age. And then what happens when you institutionalize somebody in America? The recidivism rate is high. So that person is going to keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. And there are going to be some people who are able to escape that cycle. And then there are some people who are just not going to be able to live outside of it. And again, it's another situation where we don't acknowledge the institutional roots of that. We just kind of write off the people who suffer from it so yeah i mean that all of that stuff is kind of tied up in the song and in being an educator i just you know to being hopeless about the future is kind of a very privileged thing like we can't if we're all here especially if we're teachers we can never afford to give up on these kids so that's that's yeah. that's real man like to 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 have that mindset, even in the midst of 
hopelessness to, to never give up. Yeah. So you say repeatedly multiple times at the end of that song, Time Off, you just want to go home. Just want to go home. You keep saying it. And the track literally like closes out with you saying that. Um, why'd you choose to emphasize those words so much at the end of the song? Can you speak a little bit about the emotion you have going with those words? So the 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 last four bars uh, of the song is something like, uh, I wanted to ask the teacher how he learned to be so cold. Uh, tried as an adult, I don't care if he writes me no poems. In supermarkets looking at prices of pay-as-you-go phones, in my nightmares, I still hear, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Mm. And the initial hook is, I just got to work and already want to go home. And so the second hook is different than the first in that. Mm. I still remember, like, the what I'm saying in the first hook is kind of the same thing anybody at a job says. You get to the middle of the week and it's like, I just got here, but I want to go home. Yeah. And then the second hook there's a, a memory I have, a specific memory of there's there was a, a room we were in. I think it was a classroom in the detention center that was facing Ogden Avenue. It looked out on this fast food joint where we ate lunch sometimes on break before coming back and teaching in the second half of the day. And there was a kid who was looking out that window and it was close to the holidays. I think we were about to go on winter break. And the kid was just saying, like, man, I just want to go home. And that stuck with me. Because it, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to see kids in that situation around the holidays because it's you don't get to spend that time. You should be home with your loved ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you're up here. And I, you know, it's it's. And it's not, I don't, I don't want people to think I'm coming from a place of pity or, or sympathy because that doesn't do anything for young people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's more so coming from a place of empathy where it's, I just could not imagine having to be in the shoes of a kid who is locked up during the holidays. And just like, I just want to go home. Like I'm here, I just want to go um it's hard to articulate really but it it was the kind of place where we would leave every day and we would be relieved that we would be done working there mm -hmm. and then we would immediately feel guilty because it's like oh we got to walk out of there mm. Mm. kids don't get to mm. so yeah i mean all of that stuff is kind of tied up like I was saying in the song and is the difference between those two hooks. Mm -hmm. You know, as I'm talking to you and just like reflecting on your music, it seems like you, you share a lot of your empathy that I'm obviously, I know you deal with in real life, right? Cause that's where it happens first, but you also share it in your music. Um, and I wonder how difficult 
is that for you when you decide that you want to write about this? Like, I mean, I know true artists tend to do this a lot, but Mm. like, does that ever, is it ever like a, a thing where you, it's a process for you to be able to put those kinds of words in, 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 in music form and share mm. it like. Recording it yeah. for sure. Recording it. I think writing it, not so much because writing is the safe place to do it for me. Yeah. Like that's just how I've processed my experiences, my entire, most of my life at this point, almost two thirds of it has been what I experienced has to go on paper right. at some point in order for me to really get past it. But those particular experiences, it was, and and it was helpful to be able to tap into that emotion while I was recording because I was recording everything at home. So it's not like I'm in a studio, I have, you know, my best friends in the next room and I can't feel like I can be totally vulnerable in terms of what I'm recording there. Right, right, right. You're in your Cause own you know, space. you could be, I could be vulnerable even in this conversation, I'm being vulnerable, right? I could be vulnerable in conversation, but when you go in that booth, there is an expectation of like, you have to set that vulnerability to the side and be a super rapper mm. sometimes, like not all the time, but sometimes. And so I was just home recording those joints and that one in particular, I just wanted to feel everything I was saying and a lot of memories rushed back and there are just certain things that I hadn't felt in years that mm. came back to me. And uh, that was the difficult part. The recording was the difficult part for me. Cause mm. then it's like, okay, I've, <laughs> I messed up this take. Now I gotta go back and redo this take. And I can't, it can't be fake. Like I can't. Yeah, cause I that's can't. ultimately what people are gonna hear. They're not gonna hear yeah. the written, the visual of the written rhymes, right? They're hearing yeah. the, that's the finished product, the recording, mm-hmm. the vocals. So I, I get it. Um, so on a lighter note, I, I did want to talk to you about um, this thing that you have going on called the MC Rec Shop. Yes. Uh, yeah. I believe you do it with Add2. Yes. Uh, what exactly is it as well as its purpose and mission? So we've been, we've been on hiatus for quite some time. Uh, in terms of MC Rec Shop. Uh, And we still got to figure out what coming back is going to look like. But uh, I co-founded it with a producer from Chicago named Sev Severe under a different name 10 years ago. And then a nonprofit organization in Chicago essentially bought us out and turned what we were doing into MC Rec Shop. And I just kind of kept working with them and kept MC Rec Shop going. I mean, it was the kind of workshop I would have wanted to attend when I was younger that wasn't around, where it's just, you know, let's sit around for two hours, write raps, talk about raps and rap for each other. That's it. Just a a place to really build and network and sharpen each other's minds, really. And I think that it's, you know, I miss hosting it on a regular basis with ad. I think we just want to make sure that when it's time to restart it, we're, we're going about it in the right way. But 
it's it's incredibly fulfilling and rewarding we've been fortunate enough to have worked with some of the best and brightest young talents in chicago and um it's it's kept me sharp as a rapper because if i'm in rec shop and there's this like 15 year old kid here who's stepping in the cypher and killing everything moving it's like damn i can't i can't rest for a minute yeah he might be uh, a competition you know <laughs> there you go it's yeah. like it's like uh i'm a big i'm a big fan of battle rap so i remember when chess from the bronx started doing his thing in battles he was like 17 18 years old and all of the all of the old heads were looking around like, damn, we got to deal with this kid now. Like that's, and I think that that's kind of what rec shop is for me. And the other thing too, just, uh, I think my experiences in hip hop aren't really worth anything unless somebody else is going to be able to benefit from the lessons I've learned from them. And I'm not, I always feel kind of weird saying this because I'm not God body, obviously, like I'm a white dude. <laughs> But each one teach one is one of the things that I've taken from hip hop and applied to my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's something that's incredibly powerful because there are a lot of kids in hip hop who, I mean, when we were coming up, it was like, you did what you could with who you could, but you didn't have any idea what the structure of the industry looked like. You didn't have any idea how to get your music service to radio or, you know, in the iTunes store. You didn't know how to do anything apart from I'm going to burn these CDs and sell them to whoever wants them. So just to be able to have learned from my experiences with music and then able to pass them on to young people who are going to appreciate them and be able to learn from them and hopefully avoid some of the things that Add to and I were not able to avoid in our experiences with music. Uh, yeah, I think that that's the mission of MC Rec Shop. Dope, dope. Thanks for sharing that. Big ups to add to another amazing MC, man. And and not to get too off track because I I know that we're not all the way through this album yet. But add to is also, um, in addition to being just a, a an incredible mentor and a really bright example for all of us in Chicago who are mm -hmm. rappers, you mm -hmm. know, regardless of whether we're his students or his peers. He also was the first person from the city to really show that you could make it happen without necessarily having all of the industry contacts in the world, just off a of hustle and grind. Mm -hmm. Ad never, like when he was on the come up on Two Dope Boys, he didn't have a manager. He still doesn't have a manager. Wow. He does everything himself. So it also lends credibility to everything that we're able to do as Rec Shop that he's so involved and also is so willing to be able to pass on what he's learned to young people as well. So shout out to Ad too. Great human being, great rapper too. And uh, I gotta I gotta get my lick back because he got me on that song. So I gotta get back in the booth with him and I need I need to get even with Ad. <laughs> I need to get even with him. So the song Shortcuts features Prem Rock and Armin Hammer on it. How did you decide on having their contributions on the track and how 
you know, did you express to them the subject matter that you wanted the song to tackle? Um, I mean, I had the, I'm, I'm somebody where when it comes to songs, I'm not big on specific subject matter for the guests. It's okay. pretty much just like, what is the, what does this make you feel? Go off of it. Mm-hmm. Like there's, this is the subject matter in the song, add on to it. Mm. And, and so shortcuts, the verse for that, I originally had written to the, the beat for Barbarians off of Arm & Hammer's Rome album. And I just kind of wrote it again about, you know, institutional, like how criminal justice is uh, handled in the United States and a bunch of stuff. And I handed it off to them and they, they asked some qualifying questions about it, but, or some clarifying questions about it that I answered, but I don't recall what they were. Um, but I basically just gave them the same assignment I give everybody, which is I knew Arm & Hammer was going to be on it. Uh, Prem was going to be on another song that we wound up cutting just because we didn't have the right beat for it. And I threw him on there because I knew that with his delivery, it was going to sound he was going to body it. So having him and Harmon Hammer on that song and the things that they were addressing and the things that we were addressing, like, I just, it just felt right. Mm, mm. All of the right elements in the right places. Yeah. Cause the reason why I asked that question, like the latter part is like, as far as the subject matter is because that was one of the tracks on the album that I couldn't really follow to in terms of what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just kind of wanted to hear like how, the track like like the writing for the track came to be for Mm. you know for everyone on the track you know but yeah yeah i can't speak to theirs i know from mine it was um mine was about how the cops treat i mean how uh the country treats the pharmaceutical industry different from any other industry that sells illicit substances in the country and then also how kids who are then trapped within that system tend to really only get the one time to mess up and for some of them that one time to mess up means they're going away forever Mm. so that that's kind of what the title refers back to that's what my verse is talking about um and i think people like prim in Woods and Elucid, the strength of their writing is in their ability to conjure imagery that evokes some of the feeling of that message without being super direct. And so I think that that's probably why it's not the easiest joint to grasp. I could definitely see that for sure. And I also think that something I want to do as an MC is write something that people have to come back to because they want to understand it. Mm-hmm. Like I want to write something that's going to engage you. I don't want to write something that's just going to be gibberish. Like I think about there's a, a big difference between like what Ghostface is does on Supreme Clientele and the word soup that a lot of people who think they're making that kind of music <laughs> right. do instead, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that that's kind of how the writing came together and everybody took their 
angle on it. And yeah, I love how that came together. And it's one of the few songs from that album where every time I return to it, I get something new. I hear something new. Indeed. On, on the song, Small Comforts, mm-hmm. you have a line where you say, if you start stripping the violence out of these songs, all that's left is a sad song. What made you come to the reali- to that realization? Let me say it again. What made you come to that realization after omitting the violence in the songs? Uh, it's more so about, I think a lot of us when we're younger and we write battle raps and we're starting out, comes from a place of misplaced aggression mm. or like misplaced sadness. It's a lot easier for me at 14 or 15 years old to take out whatever I'm feeling on a, on a whack MC like a, you know, a, the proverbial whack MC mm-hmm. than it is for me to take it out on the people around me, you know? So like how a lot of times all of the violence that is in music like that, when you take it away, what's left is somebody who's just trying to cope with something that they can't deal with. So they got to they gotta create an imaginary opponent to take it all out on, you know? That's hitting the heavy bag. Yeah. for a lot of us so yeah yeah that those were that was one of those lines that again like you hear it at first it it, it gives you a feeling on the surface level but when you go back and you listen you're like wow that's pretty profound like i feel like i i i felt like i understood what you were trying to say but i just wanted you to kind of break it down for clarity you know, yeah, man, that that's a deep one. <laughs> um, the song Muscle is mm. like one of the standout songs on the album, I think. Uh, immediately when I heard it, just, just off the vibe of it, like I was like, I like this record right here. Um, you talk about carrying the weight of a struggle by yourself and refusing help because of your pride. What do you think created the mindset of you not wanting to accept help when you're hurt? And how have you made progress to overcome that? Uh, I don't think I'm afraid of that anymore. And, but I was raised by a man who definitely was. Mm. And I think a lot of us were, were, you know, who had, who were fortunate enough, uh, to have dads at home, especially dads who are of a particular generation, the strong and silent type was the way that they carried themselves. So it was like, I I like to like, you know how Tony Soprano is always kind of talking about like, you ever watch the Sopranos? I I wasn't like an avid viewer of it, but I'm definitely familiar, yeah. So Tony Soprano's, like one of his refrains throughout the series is like, whatever happened to the Gary Cooper, the strong silent type. And yet 95% of that show is him getting pissed off and and sad and depressed and taking it all out mm-hmm. on other people. So I, I think that informed the writing of the song and also kind of informs how I move through the world. And I think that, changing how that 
kind of mentality affected me and in, in starting to ignore it or or starting to really second guess it and turn it into something productive was really helpful in all of these different aspects of my life. And the song is ultimately subversive. And I, I like that you caught that because it's not healthy. Like doing that is not healthy. That's mm-hmm. not... It, feel, it feels good in the moment. It feels good to be able to say that, like made me feel like a tough guy. But at the same time, it's not true strength. True strength is being able to understand the appropriate ways to process what you're feeling and, and uh, manage your mental health so that you're able to, you know, again, not just take it out on the first person who looks at you the wrong way. You know, I thought it was interesting when you said, I'll tell you, you know, like you said, if I'm hurt, I'll tell you if I trust you. But I'm probably, but you said you'll probably lie because you know that that person is going to want to offer help. And I was like, wow, like there's layers to that piece right there. It's like, you're like on the verge of getting ready to tell someone that you trust, but that same person that you trust, you know, they're going to help you. So you don't even want to, you know, you like, you pull back. So that, 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 that situation is like breaking down kind of the psychology of someone who's, so prideful right like and there's there's real people that are like that like um you know you'll just never know you know they just i don't know what it is it's almost like like you said it's not a good thing but it's funny in this life though sometimes it's looked at as a as a good thing but ultimately it's really not you Mm -hmm. know to to not want to you know, uh, open yourself to to help, especially from someone who you trust. You know, yeah. But it was you know, it was just really interesting how you displayed that. I'm not, I don't think I'm doing it justice in no you how you I'm absolutely are expressing you absolutely the art. Are doing it justice, but it, it it was very interesting. Like yeah, how you were able to like express that? Yeah, yeah. You just don't. You would rather burden yourself than somebody else. Right. I think yeah. there are a lot of us. I think there are a lot of us out there who are like that. I think there's that whole thing that uh the first time I heard somebody say it was Royce the Five Nine said it in a song, and then I started seeing it on social media a whole lot. But like check on your strong friend. Right, right. So that, that person who's the one who's always listening and, and always lending a helping hand, it doesn't mean that that person has everything figured out. That's somebody who you should probably offer help to because they might not want to burden you, but they probably should lean on you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, man, definitely. So the, the track posts, which I believe is the final track on the album, Mm -hmm. you say you're trying to keep your eyes on your blessings. Want to help your kids shape this world better than we left it. I understand you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand you just had a child, right? Not too long. Yeah. Ago. Yeah. I just so, had a, a daughter October 5th. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. 
my question for you is how has fatherhood shaped your own understanding of purpose? Like the mm. purpose that you have now, how has mm. fatherhood shaped that? Mm. What an amazing question. Uh, I think that what fatherhood has done, and I'm only, I'm like not even nine weeks into it, so I can't even speak to that yet, but it's it definitely shifts your priorities. And something happens neurologically where the things that matter and the things that don't matter fall into place right away. So, you know, something like, in the past, I might have been, I might scroll through social media and see somebody who I, I know is clearly posting something to get attention that might annoy me. But now it's like, what, why, like, why am I even on social media? I got this kid here. Like I got, she, she needs a bottle. Like what, Definitely. it doesn't even matter. So it's things like that. I think it's been helpful with, and it's also just an opportunity to be able to really value what I need to, what I do well, and also really seriously interrogate what I need to change. Mm. And it gives me, I think, the greater sense of purpose that it gives me is that now I'm not only responsible for myself and the well-being of my wife, but I'm also responsible for making sure that this child who we've brought into the world is not only safe and protected, but is going to change it for the better. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, fatherhood has been an amazing experience. I love it. I love being a dad. I love being able to you know, make my, make my daughter smile. And I don't care about, you know, I would spend 24 hours straight just changing diapers. I don't know that I would like it, but I would do it if that's what it, it took in order to keep her safe and happy and healthy and all of that. So I think it just, yeah, it pulls everything into focus for you and, and reminds you that your purpose now is so much larger than yourself and there are certain things that are worth sacrificing because they're never going to matter as much as your family indeed indeed well congratulations once again man and Thank first you. first time dad right yeah yeah because i see you change your name to dad c <laughs> i think yeah <laughs> was it your ig name or something like that yeah i was like yeah, yeah. dope dope so I have to ask you this because I know the album just came out and it's currently on Bandcamp. But for those that might be interested, what, when do you expect to release it on digital streaming platforms? It's up there now. It's oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, wow, yeah, I didn't even realize. Now. Yeah, as of now. when? Today or? Uh, yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was trying to. I was trying to keep it on the low just because it was Bandcamp Friday. Right, 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 right. Uh, but yeah, not nah, yesterday. Okay, so it's available now. So by the time people hear this, well, they'll they'll know it's out there. Okay, cool. But definitely Bandcamp. I, I try to promote the Bandcamp a lot too when I do the interviews because I understand. I, I really like what Bandcamp is doing, and like what they do with the Bandcamp Friday, and just the fact that um, you know, in a world where 
you know, everything is streaming and artists don't are not able to get the money like they used to. Like mm-hmm. I think Bandcamp is a, a, is keeping that direct to consumer purchase thing still alive and the fact that you could contribute more money than just the, you know, the price that the asking price. Um so I also wanted to say uh well let me just say thank you so much for your time. I definitely had a pleasure interviewing you. Uh before I close out, uh the last question I want to ask you is really like what's next for you musically? I feel like even though you've been doing this for so long, I get the sense that you're still just kind of just getting started. I could mm. be wrong, but I just feel like in terms of more people getting to recognize you, this is like an, a, a beginning in a sense, you know? Um, and so just, you know, if you could just express like, how do you intend to take the success that you've gained with this release and everything else so far musically and position your next steps for your music career? I mean, they're already like my next year is pretty much in the hands of whoever's going to be doing the mixing and mastering. So wow. uh, Def Prez album will definitely be out next year with Crash Prez and Knows the Time. Um, album with Boathouse on Closed Sessions will be out next year. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not, but, uh, you know, this has been I've said everything else in this interview might as well say that uh there's some really cool music with ray west and disco vietnam that's going to be coming pretty soon there's going to be an album from myself solar five and green slime that's gonna be crazy that one is just gonna it's gonna it's just it's just three dudes locking in and trading top five spots back and forth between each other on songs like that's it's it's going to be really refreshing in terms of that, especially considering the fact that like a lot of the material that I've made the past few years has been exercising demons, you know, so like it's going to be good to be able to just have the opportunity to put out music with two dudes or incredibly gifted rappers. Um where we're just kind of trying to outrhyme each other the whole project. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm trying to think. So the Death Press album, Closed Sessions, Ray West joint, Slime, Solar 5 joint. There's definitely one I'm forgetting about that I'm, oh, and, oh, okay. So an album with Seb Severe, Death Severe, that'll be coming out. That one is crazy. That's the one that I've been playing along with unreleased stuff, including stuff from Trapdoor, and people have been uh, responding to the Sev- the Def Severe stuff really well. And an album with Golden Beats as well will be coming next year too. So I got a whole lot of music that just kind of needs to get mixed and mastered, and I just need to chase down these features, and then it'll be done. But yeah, we've we're I'm already kind of planning into 2024, but wow. 2022 is already is already laid out. So I, I don't even understand. Like I, I'm, 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 I, I wanted to get a chance to just ask you, like, how have you? Like, I mean, now I, it seems like you prepared 
for the fatherhood journey, right? So you could have the time because you you're talking about 2024. <laughs> like yeah. you've gotten you seem like you're sitting on music that now you could like literally take a whole year off or possibly even two years and just be dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, yeah. So my question, I guess I'll follow up with this question. Like, how have you been able to do this? Like, this is a lot of work. Like like, is there a work ethic strategy that you put in place that allows you to see all of these projects through? Like, I so like all of the gaps in my discography, I never stop writing and I never stop working. Mm. And the reason why is because this is how I stay sane. Mm. Like, this is this is my whole life, my you know, from my formative years to now. If I can't put something out on paper, I'm not going to be able to deal with it. It's got to it's got to be put down on paper. And if I'm going to put it down on paper, it's going to be fire. So I'm going to be measuring it against the best in the world constantly just to make sure that I'm I'm up to par. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, I want people to hear it. And a lot of these projects are things I've been working on forever. Like I just don't, I don't rush things. And I, and I try my best to make sure that I'm crafting what it is I want to say in the exact way I want to say it. And if it's not ready for me to record it, it's not ready for me to record it. If I record it and it's not ready to come out yet, I'll re-record it. So I just keep chipping away at it. And I'm very fortunate in that I have a career that I love that is able to sustain me and my family that's not rap. And then I could just focus on making the best music I can. But I think I've come up with a formula where it's like, if as long as I'm, I'm done with the writing and recording, like in a given year for the next year, mm. and as long as I just kind of stay organized and stay planned and, and keep everything uh, well planned, then all I got to do is just see everything through to its logical conclusion. So, wow. Hey man, I, you know, I'm sure like a lot of your fans are just like grateful <laughs> for that work ethic, you know? And I, I think it works to your benefit in this age that we're living in where there's so much music coming out that, um, you you kind of it kind of like a a project that was released a month ago can get lost in the shuffle you know what i mean <laughs> because there's so much coming out and there's so much competition but i also like the fact that you take your time with it even though you're putting out so much you like you said you're not rushing it so the authenticity i'm sure comes across that way as well mhm so, and it also makes sure that nothing sounds dated because right. if I write to a beat seven years ago and I'm thinking about putting it out and it sounds played out, I don't rock with it. Right, so, right. So you could scrap it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, man. Listen, thank you again, Def C, man. I, I, I look forward to seeing how your career continues to grow musically. Uh, I'm going to definitely be checking for some of those new releases. And I'm going to go back and you know, get back to some of the stuff that I missed. Um, but again, it was a pleasure interview, man, interviewing you and much success, you know, moving you. forward, you know, with your career, man.
Thank you. And, and thank you for not only taking the, the time to do this, but also to take the time to really break down the lyrics and, and take note of what specific bars you had questions about. Because I think people like myself, like, yeah, I want to make music that people can enjoy on a surface level, but I also feel really fulfilled when people are doing their due diligence to write down lyrics and ask me about them specifically. So yeah. thank you very much for doing all of your research and for taking an interest in what it is I do. And, um, you know, hopefully we can have more conversations. And if you're ever in Chicago, just hit me. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you, man. Like I, I told this to an artist before a number of artists before, like one of the reasons why I, I really tap into the lyrics and try to, you know, get a hold of what the lyrics is, is trying to say is one, because I'm a fan of lyrics. Like, you know, I'm into lyrics. I MC myself. And mm. the other thing is I feel like a lot of times when I do these interviews, it's helping to not only enhance my understanding and appreciation for the music, but I feel like if it's doing that for me, then it's likely doing that for fans of your music or someone that may first find out about you because of the interview and now they go to the album and then they have a whole enhanced experience of listening to the music. So I kind of, look at the interviews as you know how back in the days you would have EPKs that mm -hmm. came with the actual music, you know, when you would buy it, it'll, it'll come with like the digital EPK and the story behind the music. I liken my mm -hmm. interviews as sort of an addition to the music. So if after someone mm -hmm. watches this, they can go back and listen to the music and they're able to have a deeper appreciation for the music from your participation in the interview word so in that case man i'm very fortunate to have been on your radar and indeed, uh, indeed, let's yeah. keep building bro let's likewise, keep building likewise so i just want right. to say to our audience thank you again for rocking with me i know i had y'all here for what like two hours <laughs> so thank you again <laughs> def c for your time man i appreciate it and uh make sure y'all keep connected with me we are at episode 97 so i got three more episodes before I get to 100, and I'm closing out the year, Def C. When I get to 100, I'm done. I, I got to take a little break. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you want to talk about work ethic, yeah. man. If you're trying to get to 100 before the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm really, I mean, I didn't do 100 episodes this year. I did about 59, I think. I think about Still. 59. So, uh, but, you know, uh, I, I want to get to that 100 and, and close out. So to all of my viewers, my listeners, the Out the Box fans, I truly, truly appreciate y'all. You know, always make sure y'all check for me on the website, outtheboxmedia.com. And yo, Def C, give them the socials and the websites and where people can get to you before we get out of here too. Uh, bet just Def C on Twitter and Instagram, D E F C E E, um, Def C .com for all of the music. A uh, good chunk of the music on the Bandcamp is available for is available on digital streaming platforms, but there's also a good chunk of it that's exclusive to Bandcamp. And yeah, if you're rocking with the music, thank you so much for. I, I tend to have people who really 
get the word out there about the music. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing the word. And yeah, thank you for your time, Krill. And thanks for everybody who even just spends time enough to listen to one song. I appreciate everybody. So indeed, indeed. So on that note, I just want to say peace, love, and light. Y'all stay focused, stay healthy, stay safe. We are out of here.